Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us today on this, the inaugural Second Drafts podcast. Excited about this new aspect of what I'm trying to do with Second Drafts. Thanks to those of you who have subscribed and supported uh, this extra work and initiative. My name is Craig Dunham, and I write a blog called uh, Second Drafts and a newsletter that goes out every Friday. And then once a month, we're going to be doing a um, podcast with different guests who uh, are just folks who I know and folks who are interesting and have lots of experience and wisdom to share with us. And uh, I hope that it's going to be a, a great time for those of you who uh, want to enjoy uh, some deeper uh, discussion, in-depth, uh, tough topics, which today is certainly one of them. And uh, I'm really excited to uh, be able to bring this to you. So thanks for trying this out. Uh, I want to introduce to you uh, Catherine Albrecht, who is our special guest for today. Peaches is with us as well, so she's not far away. But let's get to Catherine. Catherine, Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Catherine is a uh, previous, uh, well, basically she serves here at Trinity Church. She and I go to church together. She's on staff at Trinity Church. and uh, But previous to her current position at Trinity, uh, Catherine enjoyed a long career in telecommunications and cybersecurity engineering. Uh, In other words, you don't want to mess with her. Uh, Formerly a member of the intelligence community for the federal government, Catherine worked to secure computer networks from cyber attacks. She has since retired, though she continues to teach graduate cybersecurity classes for Webster University in St. Louis. So we've got a little bit of overlap and bond there in St. Mm -hmm. Louis. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's now in full-time ministry at Trinity Church, where she helps people get connected to be seen, to be known, to be loved, into healthy community within the Trinity Church body. She also leads women's ministries, as well as organizes community events, and she uh, keeps her husband, Steve, organized and, and running and going. So you kind of stole my thunder in terms of your background. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I think I told you once I applied to the FBI. Yes, yes. you did. And yes. yeah. they rejected me because I... Uh, you were not old enough? No, I, I was plenty <laughs> old, but uh, I had written on... They, one of the, in the pre-application, they asked, why do you want to join the FBI? And I said, because I was a big X-Files fan. <laughs> and so right there, I was probably flagged. You probably saw it come through in all your work. Is there anything you could tell us? I mean, top secret from your days... Um, so the, it, it took them a day when I retired. It took a whole day for me to return and relinquish all my credentials when I was leaving um, the intelligence community. And so um, I was um, repeatedly just told not to share uh, any more anything i could go to jail for some of the but things. it's just us i mean yeah. never mind the people who may be listening i mean just among friends is there there's no nugget you can share with us or well let me put it this way when we're 85 okay. and everything's been declassified i can share everything ad nauseum man but it's prison a minute before that wow okay i'll let you go with that but what were, what were some of the things that you would do i mean what did your what is what is what is being the cybersecurity attack <laughs> defense? What does that look like? So just think of uh, different nations. Um, so the the intelligence community is divi- is divided into what I can't talk about is just the focus of particular intelligence community agencies. So, for instance, the NSA and the CIA are focused on um, external or foreign intelligence assets sure. or foreign intelligence initiatives and f- intelligence collection. Um, the FBI, to where you applied, is entirely domestic. <laughs> to where I so, applied? Yeah. So, we don't even have to acknowledge that. That's, it's that's okay. Not, okay. It's okay. It's okay. I was, I was, I was playing. A I, I might have seen you on, Headhunt, on Mindhunter. <laughs> you probably did. Yes. So, anyway, um, but they're just uh, very distinct authors authorizations and authorities that the NSA and the CIA operate under as an example. Um, There's a very clear delineation over surveillance of individual pieces of intelligence that are collectible and Mm -hmm. surveillable. And so the NSA and the CIA in particular can focus on foreign 
initiatives, but nothing domestic unless there is a court order like a FISA court okay. order that would allow something like now, that. How, how did you get into this? I mean, how did, did, were you just walking down the sidewalk and somebody, <laughs> they'd been watching you and they knew you were smart and said, hey, why don't you come work for us? Oh, so not that far off. Okay. Um, I have a, <laughs> I have a, a master's degree from Webster University and all my instructors were current or former employees of the typical three-letter agencies in the intelligence community. And so, so what were you studying? I was studying um, how to, the technology piece of okay. how to you defensively and offensively protect computer networks from malicious attacks, from malicious actors. And there are a number of different initiatives or a number of different methodologies that you can follow to do that. And so my background specifically in the late 80s um, began with computer network engineering and I became very accustomed to knowing what is being transmitted on the wire. So when you're making a phone call using your cell phone or you're reading something on the internet or looking at a website, um, that all gets transmitted into little packets or envelopes Mm -hmm. onto the wire and to know what legitimate traffic looks like um, to know and observe patterns um, and to know what different types of traffic looks like put me in a really good position to know what malicious or malware or exceptions to that particular pattern so you got recruited out of school then i did um yeah i did I did. I have. I finished my master's degree uh, some years ago, and um, I have an MBA that I got in the late '80s with an IT emphasis, and that mm. just set me right into computer network engineering. So this is like Alias. I mean, you were you were recruited out of there. Did you ever see that show, Alias? Um, I can't recall that I did. <laughs> you can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> can't confirm or deny. I hate that phrase. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's so good. Oh, so, so, so you were recruited right out of there, and then you went to work for. I mean, were you there in St. Louis, or did did they transfer you? Um, I we moved to we lived in Maryland, okay. um, and I went to work for the National Security Agency, and so um, we we lived just a little bit outside of Fort Meade, and so um, yeah, it was wow. it was a good career. Um, that was probably the later part of my career. Okay. So just think of like say Tom Brady in the later part of his career as he wins <laughs> the Super Bowl and okay. then decides to retire. Okay, that's kind of the that's kind of the way that it worked out. And did did they try to wrestle you out of retiring just because? You were so good at what you did. Um, they made it. I mean, they made it very lucrative for me to yeah. to join. Um, mm-hmm. They paid for us to move okay. to Maryland, and they gave me a signing bonus, and I was paid extraordinarily. I was paid very well, just given the amount of experience sure. I came with and my age. Um, and I'm also less, just as an older female, I'm less. Um, suspicious hmm. like I don't fit the typical model of what you think of a, of a hacker or somebody who's in cybersecurity being <laughs> I don't have a hoodie I mean I do own them <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I don't I don't have one I don't wear one when I'm when I was online and so um, yeah yeah what what an interesting background it was yeah yeah it was it was fun there were not very many women in yeah. the 80s or 90s and it's still it was about 10% female when I entered the industry, and it's in cybersecurity in that sector of IT, mm-hmm. there's probably five percent okay. female, and I, I enjoyed my career, Craig. I never had um, mm. any kind of discrimination or harassment mm. issues. I feel that's um, refreshing. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't go looking for it, sure. and so I led with my brain, and I it was obvious that I'm a female, mm-hmm. and so I just led with my brain and mm. expected to be treated the same mm. and equal to my male counterparts, and I honestly enjoyed working with men. I mm-hmm. enjoyed working with my male colleagues, and we had a meeting of the minds, and it was just this friendly colleague collegial affection that we had with one another and it was just we all worked together as a great team and yeah Mm. many in my cyber portion of my career many of the folks I worked with were probably close to half my age yeah Um, and we were all just sort of befuddled as to where are where all the the women Mm. that should be in a field like this Mm -hmm. and there's still a shortage so yeah Mm. there's still yeah, I spoke actually to a few schools um, when we lived in Maryland, urging girls to enter STEM fields in mm. particular. Mm-hmm. And so you know, okay. there's still a shortage, but I love my career. Okay. But being in ministry at Trinity, it's still about people. Yeah. It was about people in the intelligence community, and it's still about people. I just look at it as being on the 
back then it was being on the front lines of national security. Here it's being on the front lines of, of ministry. Now, how so, did you end up in Bozeman and, and at Trinity? So we've been coming out here for probably 20 years or so. Okay. Um, my my earlier job had, had brought me out here um, to do some work in Big Sky when the Yellowstone Club some 20 years ago was mm. under construction. And so we made friends out here. Um, we enjoyed the beer out here. We began backpacking out here, mm. and so I kind of, kind of distill it down into we came out here for beer and backpacks. And so, <laughs> but we, that's a that's a pretty familiar call here yeah, in Montana. Yeah, yeah. yeah, those two to go together. Yeah, I have another. We have another friend at Trinity um, who has actually used that phrase also. Okay. Yeah, and I've kind of hijacked that from her. <laughs> so, but that was that's kind of kind of consolidates kind of what what brought us out here. Okay. Yeah. Now you're teaching a, a culture class of sorts at mm-hmm. Trinity, and I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and what what you're covering here because that that dovetails into obviously what we're going to be talking sure. about. But uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, we're doing um, a class that explores Rebecca McLaughlin's book called The Secular Creed. Um, she is a an English um, apologist and Christian author and speaker, and she I, I became aware of her work at a Gospel Coalition conference that I'd attended some time back, and she's written other books um, besides The Secular Creed, but the, this book that she's written just last year um, takes five individual statements um, in her book. Um, and I'll, I'll just summarize them here. Mm-hmm. One is um, Black Lives Matter. Um, the next is Love is Love. Um, the next is Women's Rights or Human Rights. The next is Gay Rights are the New Civil Rights. And then the final one is Transgender Women or Women. And these five claims are really lifted from many yard signs that people mm-hmm. have put, hammered into their front yards that summarize many of these statements that they lead with, in this house we believe these statements Mm -hmm. and we as Christians have had our creeds for thousands of years and so her title of her book kind of summarizes these statements as a secular creed from our secular friends that these are the things that embody and really distill and mm-hmm. summarize what it is that we believe mm-hmm. about human culture. Okay. And so in the class, I'm taking her book and we're reviewing her book and I'm adding additional material that I find helpful um, for our students, for our attendees, and mm-hmm. adding just how do we um, affirm what may be true and good and right within some of those statements? Like what are they based on? And then how can we disentangle the things that we cannot as Christians affirm? Mm. But to really just acknowledge the integrity of many of those statements and the underlying purpose of her book is that all of those statements may seem like they're random, secularly based in our culture, but her, her thesis is that they're all ultimately rooted in Christian soil. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the whole idea of, of human equality and human dignity and worth is ultimately rooted in the values of Christianity. Right. And that ties in certainly, I think, with where we are. Um, January twenty second is the forty ninth anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and there's all kinds of debate, division, discussion, um, really about that issue of of what is what what is our responsibility in in terms of thinking about human life where does it start where does it end uh who gets to decide and i think that's part of why just because of what you're teaching as well as your own experiences uh, i wanted to have you on to to talk about this because i couldn't think of anybody better to to help me kind of talk through it you're talking about like with the secular creeds all of those things about life really do come, I mean, the values that we hold, whether or not we want to acknowledge them or not, they really do stem out of a Christian worldview. And I think one of the things that I, I did just thinking about that is thinking about, you know, what has the Christian worldview been on this topic mm-hmm. of abortion, um, which, of course, is one of the primary um one of the primary tenets, I suppose, of feminism in the sense that uh, the, the woman's rights trump mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the idea of 
the child. Yes. Um, or, you know, some wouldn't even call it a child yet, the fetus mm-hmm. in that regard. And so I think trying to understand where that's coming from uh, is important. So I, I did a little bit of, I put a few thoughts together, you know, the earliest reference going back to abortion that we have uh, is from China, actually. And this is about 2,700 years BC. Um, we have a document uh, from Chinese Emperor Xin Yung who, that mentions oral abortifacient. Um, we go through the Code of Hammurabi, their prohibitions against abortion, the same for the Tiglath uh, Pileser, which I don't know if I pronounced that right, but that was <laughs> those were a set of Assyrian laws against abortion. And this is all BC. This is like 1100 years BC. We get to the Greeks and the Romans, and of course we have um, Hippocrates uh, with regard to the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a shift that happens uh plato for instance in the 400 bc uh, talked about ill-conceived embryos shouldn't be brought full term Mm -hmm. and if so then parents should dispose of them aristotle affirmed that that deformed children should be exposed left to die the romans practiced what we historically have thought of as exposure of children and this is actually it's it's interesting to understand the context of this because this is one of the things that set early christians apart Mm -hmm. is they would go to the dumps where Mm -hmm. the romans would expose their children leave them there basically to die and the christians would adopt them they would take them raise them as their own save their lives and that was one of the things that early on in the early part of the church that was one of the the things that really stood out about the early christians um, of course, you go into, um, you know, it, there's always been a unanimous pro-life, anti-abortion stance through the first five centuries of Christianity. Um, the Didache, which is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, this was a manual of Christian morals that had been developed um, out of and alongside Scripture later on. This is from the early second century. Uh, thou shalt do no mur- do no murder, which of course lines up with the sixth commandment. But then also, thou shalt not procure abortion nor commit infanticide. I mean, it was that mm-hmm. specific in terms of what they were doing. Um, and it goes on. I mean, you can go up through certainly Augustine, Calvin. Uh, Calvin writes in, in his commentary on Exodus twenty one. So there's been this long influence of Christianity that historically this has always been something that the church has cared about and that you know god has has spoken to and and about but we've we've come a long way from that mm-hmm. even in the last 50 years obviously you had told me that you come more from the pers- you had come from that perspective that feminist perspective mm-hmm. and that that had really informed some of your own decisions and things like that how, how do you th- how did you, how did the Catherine then think about all this compared to you now? Yeah. So um, I am an only child, and my mother and father were immigrants from the Hungarian Revolution. So I'm fond of saying that I've undiluted Hungarian blood running <laughs> through my veins. And my, um, my grandmother, which is who's my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, and my mother and I, um, we lived together because my parents um, divorced when I was two. Mm. Um, they'd been married maybe seven years, and I was my mother's third pregnancy, and I was not planned. Mm. And they didn't have a lot of money, and um, this is pre-Roe v. Wade, yeah. pre-1973. And so my mother had self-aborted uh, her two previous pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she tried the same thing with me, really? and clearly her efforts didn't um, didn't work. And so um, I just my mom and dad divorcing um, earlier than I can remember um, left me with just my mom and my grandmother. And neither my parents' marriage nor my grandparents' marriage was good. Mm. And I watched um, the fallout of just the men in their lives, such as my grandfather and my father, who should have 
in my view, should have stayed or should have had their backs, should have treated them well and protected them and provided for them. They did some of those things, mm-hmm. but they were not um, they were not good mm-hmm. to the women in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I didn't grow up hating men, but I just witnessed personally up front the the treatment mm. that my grandmother and my mother had gotten at the hands of the closest men in their lives and so it really um, cultivated a sense of independence and a, a really a desire to move as far away as possible because there was some dependence on the part of my grandmother and my mom to look at the men in their lives as the providers and to be dependent on them for more than I was willing to be in for. And so just witnessing those kinds of, of relational dynamics taking place and just being on the, just experiencing those consequences and the fallout of that, um, it left me with this desire to make a life for myself and be as independent as possible. Mm. I was no hater of men, but it definitely cultivated this strong desire to be independent and Absolutely. to not rely on a man as much as possible, mm-hmm. including provision, protection. I, As soon as I was able to in my 20s, I learned how to fire a gun. I went to proper instruction, even for protection and those kinds of things. And so I was determined to make it basically a, an all points covered um, provision for myself mm. and not have to wait on a man to be able to complete me to provide for me and those are kinds of the the sentiments that I had sure when I was growing up and well and I think especially when you look at and you can argue is it a chicken and an egg kind of thing is it the way that that men have behaved that therefore women have responded mm-hmm. and then therefore the women respond that way and push away the the men it's yeah. it, it's a really nasty cycle yeah obviously on your end you were seeing the abusiveness of the men toward the women in your life and you looked at that and said no thanks yeah yeah, yeah. and i was i, I went to a, a an all-girl catholic high school in st louis and most of my friends um, married in their early 20s and i just felt like the kind of the odd man kind of odd woman out because I was in no rush to get married and I didn't feel I didn't feel a call to motherhood I didn't think there was anything wrong with me but I just felt that those things were just simply delayed Mm. um and just simply later in coming and so I was I I was very intentional about choosing a career Mm -hmm. in computer science um that would provide um a lucrative salary for me and a lucrative compensation that would give me options later on in life I had a long view even at the age of 18 or 19, when I went into college, that um, I wanted to be able to accumulate as much financial security as soon as possible to be able to have options as early as possible in my life. To... Now, were you a Christian at the time? How did how did you come to faith? Um, so I grew up... Was that later? Um, my profession of, of saving faith, yes. Mm. That was in my late 20s, probably 30. I can't point to like a particular event like an altar call or a sinner's prayer or anything Mm -hmm. that that kind of evokes maybe or marks the traditional uh conversion moment Mm -hmm. um but i did grow up roman catholic um most of hungary 80 percent of it is is roman catholic and so um my mother was to her credit she was determined to enroll me in a catholic school to make sure that i would be catechized um and so i you know basic core Christian beliefs, um, non-negotiables that we would consider um, affirmed throughout most Christian denominations, um, sort of like Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed. Those were all things that you I... You were around those. Yeah, from yeah. the age of four. Yeah. Um, I went to Mass mm-hmm. six days a week. We went to Mass <laughs> oh. every morning before school. Um, and then on Sunday, so Saturday was the only day I did not go to Mass, mm-hmm. um, all the way till I was out of grade school. And then I got a partial scholarship to a Catholic high school. Mm-hmm which made it financially possible for us to, for mm-hmm. me to attend um, a tuition-based mm-hmm. high school. And then I went to St. Louis University for both undergrad and graduate school, which is a Jesuit university and um, mm-hmm. steeped also in Catholic tradition. And I had excellent, in fact, um, my computer science degree was viewed as an art mm-hmm. degree. And Interesting. So I took philosophy classes and Jesuits taught all of them. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I think, stirred my, my critical thinking juices so to speak mm-hmm. and so it got me thinking about things more rationally and um kind of the arc of my life and where things were going and so but i was very determined to just um pull myself up by my own bootstraps and mm-hmm. and not 
Um, my father was not part of my life when I was growing up. We did not meet. Uh, my mother died when I was 15, and we did not meet until her death when I was 15. Mm, and so wow. um, he struggled with his own issues, his own demons. And so, um, yeah, so we had a tenuous relationship. Um, but to be honest, Craig, I found it liberating to not have to mm. depend on somebody, a parent who, or a family member who I considered to be very broken right. and had let me down. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that said, my response to those, those wrongs that had been done to me were probably equally egregious. Mm. And that just sort of led me down a road of, you know, dealing with this sense of being unwanted and abandoned and led me into making decisions that were just not the best. And would you say that for, it seems to me at least that for someone like yourself who has had those kinds of experiences from parents, I mean, people you should, you should be able to expect more of, I suppose, (laughs) in the rejection of those things, you begin to really understand why a young woman in her twenties would say, look, I mean, even if you didn't hate men, yeah. S- screw men <laughs> you know yeah. i'm not going down that road yeah. and would you say that that i mean so much of that is what fuels the the, the feminist movement certainly that came out of um you know the, the 70s in that regard but mm-hmm. but even now it, it it's still there, there's a feminism that doesn't seem healthy to me yeah. Yeah. um is is that mostly why, I mean, is it mostly because of those kinds of experiences, you think? Or do you have any insight on that? Some of those, um, I, I'd, I'd gone through some of those, many of those things myself mm-hmm. that, that I could I could easily see that um, there was still, like, just even in the, the late 18th century, not too long after we became a country, a, a nation, the double standard of expectance of chastity for women mm. and philandering or just sure. giving men a pass for men, yeah. was was very much in, in enforced and in vogue and it, it cultivated this idea of women being able to tune their relational approach to men as appearance based and it made them very shallow in terms of how they were trying to draw a man into a relationship mm. and marriage was sort of like the the goal for a woman to be able to receive provision and protection mm-hmm. from a man. And I felt that same double standard mm-hmm. of expectance of chastity and purity from women, um, even in the 70s and 80s. And I think some of the feminist outgrowth had been just sort of a backlash against that expectation that, mm-hmm. look, you have this expectation of me as a woman, but you get to go out and, and you know, basically get to screw around and, right. and just... You know, satisfy all your your deepest impulses, and that's been one of the I guess encouraging things. If you, if you can say it's encouraging, say of the last five to six years, is that some of these philandering men, these these men who are finally getting called on mm-hmm. their bad behavior. Yeah, I mean that's that's been an encouraging thing to see, um, and yet at the same time it. It's hard to know the depth of that because it's so mm-hmm. prevalent. Yeah. Because like yeah. you said, there we've functioned as a country and, and certainly as a people for thousands of years. We've functioned as a country for hundreds of years where this has been more of the standard of men get away with this. Mm-hmm. Women have to deal with the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. One of which being the potential child that might right. come from that. Right. And so then that... I think brings fuel to the fire of why you see the feminist movement so passionate, I think about the, the, the choice Mm -hmm. of having abortion Mm -hmm. available is they, they tie all of that together and it's understandable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's men behaving badly and it's women taking their cue from that. I don't know yeah. if that's feminist to say that yeah. women are taking the cue from men, but it, it, I mean, that has to be part of the, the equation and how we've ended up now where there is such a, uh, a pursuit of reprodu- for repro- what's called reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole, the way that the whole pro-choice movement, the fact that they've, they've 
position themselves as pro-choice, making it about their choice, mm-hmm. not about, per se, what are we talking about in terms of the life or death of a human being? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's brilliant marketing yeah. at, at, at a base level. But at the same time, because, and, and that it's interesting, I just read yesterday that 59% of the population, uh, according to this uh, Pew uh, Research survey taken in May of, of 2021, 59% of the population agree that abortion should be available in some way. That's you know almost 60%. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is driven by the fact that we're Americans, we value freedom, mm-hmm. choice plays into that, mm-hmm. and is should be an you know we should expect that out of freedom. It really, at a base level, is very good marketing from the pro-choice movement. But I don't want to be so shallow and say, oh, it's just marketing. I mean, that's coming out of just as you mentioned, hundreds of years mm-hmm. of abuse mm-hmm. of women and women looking around and saying, okay, if I'm going to have to do this, I've got to have options. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've heard it termed, I've heard it like summarized to me um, from somebody who has been, who has been very active since Betty Friedan wrote her book mm-hmm. um, in the 60s. I have every right to be as unpregnant as the man who helped get me pregnant. Mm. And I've heard it just condensed that way. And I think that is the mantra, the rally cry for sure. the current radical or current wave of feminism. Right. That I have every right. And I, I can understand that because it, earlier in my life, I felt the same way mm-hmm. and and had those same views that, sure, if you're going to help me and participate in, in, this, in this act that has the potential to produce another life, then you're going to help me deal with the potential consequences. It's not just all on me. Our reproductive capabilities as men and women are, are incredibly asymmetric. Mm-hmm. A man participates for a few minutes, but a woman, her abilities, biologically speaking, her reproductive capabilities, are in, she's in it for months. Mm-hmm. And so the, the call of the, quote, the burden that's placed on a yes. female is far greater. But... Um, I think I've just heard a term that way that I have every right to disengage or to be free mm-hmm. of of what you have helped me, what has now I've now sure. been saddled with, and I've heard it put in far more colorful language <laughs> from a lot of rightfully resentful and many bitter and angry women mm-hmm. that have suffered that way um, for a long time. But um, it, it also speaks directly to your point about. Um, about it being more than marketing. Our culture considers personal autonomy and personal freedom just to be the pinnacle of Mm. the ultimate expression of freedom. And so any infringement now on a woman's right to choose Mm -hmm. what she would do with her own body in the privacy of her own home or between her and her doctor is summarized as being an infringement on her personal autonomy. And it flies directly in the face of the long, long road that started in the late 1700s. Um, with Mary Wollstonecraft and her um, book called The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Um, she spells that out quite a bit um, in terms of what a cooperative effort between men and women is supposed to look like. Talk a little bit about what your experience has been. Mm-hmm. And I know it's hard, too, and I, mm-hmm. I just appreciate you being willing to discuss that because I haven't heard the story. Um, I haven't heard your sure. story and a little bit of your background on this. Yeah, yeah. So some of the fallout that I described earlier from just growing up in a divorced family. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother also had a mental illness called paranoid schizophrenia, and I think Craig, I was probably eight when I realized that something was really off and. She displayed the the very common symptoms, the very typical symptoms. She heard voices in her head. She was convinced that there were people mm-hmm. right in our own neighborhood that were out to get her to make her in crazy. And she just the, the in just in in short, she made an attempt to take her life when I was twelve um, with an overdose of of pain medication. And then she tried the same thing when I was 14. Um, And then she succeeded in hanging herself when Mm. I was 15. And so that left me with this sense of, of, again, of being abandoned, of being unwanted. Um, It was at her funeral that I met my father, who I had not seen since they divorced at 
at the age of, of two, so 13 years had gone by. Um, and I kind of held my father responsible for not just fighting harder. He lived in New Jersey and I was in St. Louis and um, I kind of held him at just kind of held his feet to the fire that he did not work harder, try harder to become part of my life. And then as I got older, I learned that he struggled mightily with alcoholism and um, it really, um, made me very angry just at God in particular that combined with my Catholic upbringing that there's some some wrong that I've done mm -hmm. some sin that I've committed that you're permitting all of these things into my life like I'm an ant on the ground and you're a proverbial bully with a magnifying glass in the sun and you're just launching all of these torpedoes of trial and hurt and wounding and at least tell me what I've done mm -hmm. and so it left me with this sense of damaged goods, that I am beyond rescue, I'm beyond wanting, I'm beyond anybody wanting me. So honestly, Craig, this the, the theme of desperate to be loved and seen by somebody and cared for by somebody, um, you know, just left me um, looking, sending me looking for love in all mm -hmm. the wrong places. Mm -hmm. And so um, my behavior became promiscuous. Um, I've I, at some point in my life, I've lost track of how many partners I've had, um, and I became pregnant when I was 17, um, right as a freshman in college, um, by a guy who I knew. It was not a one-night stand. It was somebody I was in a relationship with, um, and then I was maybe five weeks pregnant and um, decided to get an abortion um, two years later. I was 19. I was still in the same relationship with the same guy and got pregnant again. And he, we were halfway through college. Um, and he said to me that if you don't, I can't bear to see you derail your life with a pregnancy. And he pressured me to get another abortion. And I actually, Craig, I really kind of agonized over the decision. I was almost 12 weeks pregnant when I decided to to get another abortion and so um, that was um, that was difficult um, but I was still just um, we did not our relationship ended at that point because I, I just was shocked and right. horrified that he would put that kind of ultimatum in front of me and he said if you if you go through with a pregnancy I'm, I can't stay with you I can't bear to see and you know to see your life go south like that and so, um, and so he was kind of making it about him, even as he was trying to make it exactly, about you. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And it was just really a difficult time. And it just, it just honestly um, ratcheted down my sense of worth and just, you know, just the sense of, again, being damaged goods mm -hmm. and um, not being really um, fit or suitable for anybody to even mm -hmm. just to see me, to love me. And it was an, an enormous amount of turmoil and struggle with just worth going on in me. And so I just launched into a very uh, promiscuous lifestyle, um, even to a greater degree. And not all the, not all my partners were single. Some were married, um, didn't matter. I don't remember feeling like the sense of moral conviction hmm. of the, the gravity of what I was doing mm -hmm. at the time. And so one thing I did, likely through God's providence, keep my focus on was, was academic work. Mm -hmm. I was determined to set my life on a course um, from a material perspective um, on one that I would never regret and never interrupt for anything. And so I ended up meeting um, the man who had become my first husband in my early mid-20s. Um, and we were having a physical relationship. He was a professing Christian. I was not at the time. Um, and so we were having a physical relationship and I became, the day that we decided to stop having sex is the day that I, the last time we had sex was when I got pregnant and I, I was shocked. I remember looking at the pregnancy test and just being bewildered at what mm. I was looking at. I, I think I almost fainted and he, also told me that it would wreck his parents and just um, wound them terribly, hurt them terribly. And he actually paid for me to get an abortion. And oh, I, was in my, I was in my late 20s, um, 26, 27 years old. Um, and so uh, we did end up getting married um, when I was 28. Our marriage didn't last very long. Um, we were married maybe two and a half years or so. Mm -hmm. 
And so um, I just remember, and it wasn't just the it wasn't just the two men who were the fathers. It it was my grandmother also. Um, I I lived with her after my mother had died. Mm-hmm. Um, she was raising a very angry, rebellious, strong-willed teenager, and she and I were cut from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. And she came from an environment in Hungary in her life where you just do what you need to do to survive. Sure. And I didn't want to keep that from her. So I told her, and she, I remember this, Craig, in no uncertain terms, she was also of the mind, you go and you get it done. You do what you need to do, and you go and you get rid of this of this child. And, and interestingly, she called it a child. Mm-hmm. You get rid of this child, and you will not derail your life. You're going to see this through. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do what your mother did. And, um, yeah. So it was not only the men, but my own family member who was my custodian, Raising right, me. because you were missing your mother and father, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm so sorry, Catherine. It's, I appreciate that. <laughs> that had to be hard. It, it, it was. I, I just I don't want to like to sugarcoat looking at the past with well, no, some fond remembrance. That yeah, it, it was. These were horrible, um, tragic, sad decisions mm-hmm. that I made. And, you know, you, somebody from the outside looking in says, you know, why didn't you learn your lesson after the first one? And mm-hmm. that just sort of speaks to just how emotionally, um, just how emotionally hurt and how much I needed somebody, wanted somebody just to mm-hmm. come alongside and even just to be a friend and treat me as a, as a human being. Mm-hmm. And I, much of that is by my own hand. I mean, I, I own... I might have been sinned against egregiously, but my response to being sinned against was equally egregious, sure. if not more so. Well, and sin ignites sin. Exactly. And when we sin against someone, usually what happens is we respond in sin, either back to that person or we take it out. You see, I mean, that whether it's generational, whether it's, you know, at a peer level, whatever, um, sin begets sin yeah. in many ways. And it's yeah. interesting to me, I guess, the community of people that you were involved in or that you were with and who were involved in your life at the time, mm-hmm. you know, how different would that have been had that been the church, mm-hmm. you know, in which I, I think speaks to, especially in their in her 20s, the, the need for for people. I think of 1 Corinthians 15, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character mm-hmm. you know and, and you're getting this from your partners one of whom was a professed christian and also one of whom was your own grandmother yeah. Um, yeah. it's it's hard to make good decisions getting that counsel from those people mm-hmm. because they're close to you and yeah um, yeah by the time i got by the time um um i had the third abortion um i was fairly established in my career mm-hmm. um i was in my late 20s and i'd graduated grad school um, I went straight through from undergrad straight into graduate school and I was afraid that if I went and entered the workforce full-time that I would not go back and so I I went to work for the university Mm -hmm. as a staff member and um, just went straight through and so I was early 20s when I finished grad school and um, it was I just remember sitting I had a suit on I was getting on a flight that day, later that day, to fly to a customer appointment the day of my third abortion. And I remember sitting on the side of the table, just hanging my head over the side of the table, Craig, and just, um, again, in my 20s, being glad that it was over. Right. Um, but it also, in all honesty, glad that this was a, a somewhat regulated legal option mm. for a woman mm. who found herself in this kind of position. Mm-hmm. And so... And I think that's it makes it makes perfect sense in that regard because of what you had been through at the hands of men mm-hmm. and how much that had that whole experience, your family history, everything had had brought you to that point mm-hmm. of just not you you were taking it all on you. Mm-hmm. And to do mm-hmm. that, these were the tools that you needed. You needed this mm-hmm. option mm-hmm. to be able to live live life and you really even fixing what a man has done to you, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, I think a lot of women find themselves in that situation. Yes. And that's, 
that's for me as a man, as you know, a husband, a father of four, of four daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is the thing that's so hard. You know, that's part of that up and down emotional uh, thing I was mentioning earlier. Is it just I just want to I just want to grab some of these guys and just say, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and again, yeah. not that I'm. I mean, I'm capable of anything. We all are because of sin. Mm-hmm. But I just think about the difference. You know, where are the where are the where is the church here helping the men mm-hmm. think differently about that? And um, uh, again, uh, all I can say is I'm so sorry. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm sorry that that has been your experience. And yet, it just it's amazing to me what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, where did this go? You've, you've had three abortions. Mm-hmm. It, it's got to be this really weird juxtaposition of you've had three abortions and feel like a failure relationally because of your your desperation for some for, for love from someone else, mm-hmm. and that in many ways you're at your peak or at, or certainly on your way mm-hmm. professionally. Yep. Yep. What? What then happened? Where, where, where did that go? Well, I was, um, I, I think at the end of the day, Craig, I was waiting for somebody, like I was holding out hope that there would be a, a man who would take life seriously. And I found that, I, I found um, many very um, just smart, intelligent, um, ethical men, colleagues in my career, in my in my previous, in my positions, but I still relationally at a deep intimate level that particular part of that kind of exclusive intimate connection I had just never met somebody and I think that had to do also that played into me not feeling a call to motherhood sure early on that Mm -hmm. there wasn't the missing piece just wasn't there and so um, I had met Steve who would become my husband some years later but I had met him in my late 20s and he was a client actually and um, we knew each other professionally but I remember thinking of him with unbelievable looking at him and thinking wow what a guy of integrity and I knew he had kids and he at the time was married and um, uh, my marriage had ended and I just remember looking at him and thinking professionally with no sense of romantic notions or anything anything inappropriate that here's a man who is a man of integrity just in terms of how he leads how he interacts with his employees and just how just the integrity and the character that he has and um yeah and that kind of i think turned my mind towards that there is hope after all that that there isn't just this great void of of men of integrity and character Mm. And I just had been, you know, that just gave me like this little spark of that there was somebody out there. Um, and then where did that, was that part of your coming to Christ in through Steve? Was that all going on or would it, was that separate? That would be the fruition of it. Okay. Um, one good thing that came out of my previous marriage to my previous husband was that he, he he was solid in what he believed and how he walked it out was atrocious <laughs> was spotty um, but he was solid in what it is that he believed and so um, he came from a Pentecostal background and we ended up I came from a Roman Catholic background and trying to find a church home that's a mix yeah meeting in the middle um, we ended up going to a Presbyterian church in Clayton um, Central Presbyterian okay sure and the that was just a, a great meeting in the middle of where the the service felt more like a mass. It was more liturgical in its format to me. But at the same time, the gospel was being proclaimed from the pulpit every mm-hmm. weekend. Um, we were, our pastor had died, um, and so the church was searching for, um, had issued a call for a new pastor. But in the meantime, um, many of the faculty from Covenant mm-hmm. Seminary came to preach right. and through them through their preaching I remember hearing the gospel at least I remember understanding it in mm-hmm. a way that I, I had never understood before and so that was a massive turning point for mm-hmm. me to um, 
And this is probably why I, I, I am reformed in my doctrine that God can pick a particular point in time or just God is the, the author of the tool of faith that you have to be able to see him for who he is. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing like Romans 8 that therefore there is now no, no condemnation. condemnation. Yeah. So like the therefore is therefore a reason. Mm-hmm. And so there is now no condemnation. And I'd been thinking all this time that God and I had this I didn't disbelieve in God. I just was convinced I'm angry at him, but I'm also convinced that I'm I'm like on the way to hell, mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm outside of his sovereign reach, that he doesn't have a preference for me, much less love. Mm-hmm. And um, so hearing those verses, that, that verse, therefore there is now no condemnation, that now, this point in time that I can know now, that there is no condemnation, like those two universal statements that they're like now no condemnation like now i can know that now i'm not relegated to guessing Hmm. and that there's no condemnation it's like that's a a blanket statement that it's not just some of my sins are forgiven no all of them there's Hmm. no condemnation so judicially from a judicial a judicial standpoint i can know that i've declared not guilty now Hmm. in this lifetime Hmm. and that just slayed me Hmm. yeah that that just i that blew my mind i think that was the key that turned the lock that god used Hmm. to be able to reveal himself to me in a way that reversed my view of who he is sure that that god so loved the world that he gave Mm -hmm. his son as john 3 16 says that well and it seems like not only in terms of the the redemption but there's also the redemption for sin but also maybe a little bit of a redemption of a father yes of what what manhood can and should be it seems like it seems like that 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 was something that also changed for you in terms of i mean obviously there's there's time that Mm -hmm. has to happen there but as to the degree that i've known you here in bozeman i mean watching you with steve watching you I think interact with the pastors, mm-hmm. other men, myself. There, there's a sense that, okay, this is not just Catherine having to have it her way, mm-hmm. because maybe there's more of a trust that God mm-hmm. has redeemed, or, or, you know, in your relationships with men. Very much so. That there is the sense of that it, as you said earlier, that it, 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 it turned around or turned right side up my view of God as being from being a distant judge uh, a punishing judge to a loving and very imminent near father mm-hmm. that he longs to be with his children and then instead of me being the object of his wrath which theologically is true sure. I'm no longer that for all of us right yeah I am now his treasured and beloved daughter um, and that I could look back and see that there were things that already had begun to show some fruit, that I had this um, sense of, of, of compassion for women who had been through the things that I had been through and just an awareness and, and sense of intimacy with people who had walked similar roads mm-hmm. that instead of looking at them thinking, why can't you get your act together? It's more like, wow, hey, I feel your pain. It's, these are all like things that I could see that he has used even more so now at mm-hmm. my age that I could see where his hand has been all along. But there had been, like, there were none of the things that I'd been through early on yeah. have, have been random or wasted or for nothing. Um, how, how do we help those, how do we help the, the 20-something Catherines who mm-hmm. find themselves both of their own doing as well as their doing of, the man that they happen to be with. Yeah. Um, what What is the thing that they need? What are the What are the things that that we can do? Mm-hmm. I think one of the first things that would have helped me the most would have been to and would help somebody in a similar situation, especially a younger girl, um, to number one affirm her humanity, mm-hmm. her worth, her dignity, and to love her well and to meet her where she's at and to walk through her story with her alongside of her and to give her 
the kind of love and attention that may possibly have led her into the circumstances that she's in to begin with. And I can recall it being like that mm-hmm. um, for me personally. But I, I, I remember looking around at the recovery room at the abortion clinics, mm. and not a single woman was there because she wanted to be there. Sure. And they're not there because they're using abortion necessarily as a birth control method. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I just to be able to affirm a woman's dignity and worth mm-hmm. and that that she is... Um, that's that's first and second of all the to surround her with community that is faithful and meets her needs both physically materially and spiritually mm-hmm. um and from an emotional perspective would be probably the second thing that i would i i would pay attention to the most mm-hmm. to walk through um with that um, especially as the church mm-hmm. um I, I think many people certainly in the, in the 1970s and 80s to be divorced but also to be pregnant out of wedlock was considered a, a, a scarlet letter. Right. Even in my high school, um, there was a particular policy written that if a girl had become pregnant mm-hmm. during the academic year, she'd be quietly asked to leave. Mm-hmm. And so there was very little support or community. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was definitely no like coming around somebody to be able to walk through right. that process. And, so. and do you think that Friday... Saturday, I don't know when the the marches are and all all of those things. Those helpful? Those not helpful? I mean, we what what's our responsibility as we think about Roe versus Wade? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you do you have hopes of that being overturned in the next year? That this would be the the last march for life because we don't mm-hmm. need that one, or we need to refocus the march for life. Um, yeah. You know, how do you think about how do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly think about just the 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 motivation behind mm-hmm. the March for Life that 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 to emphasize the dignity and worth mm-hmm. of a life that is inside uh, a woman is equally valuable and treasured as the woman's life itself. And so I understand the motive behind those. Um, and they're actually, Craig, there you, you must know that there are women who are not professing Christians who are also sure, absolutely. pro-life right. feminists in that regard mm-hmm. um, and consider that that is a woman's beauty and dignity absolutely. to be able to carry a life like that. I don't hold out any sort of notions that overturning Roe v. Wade is going to... Um, be the end of the pro-life movement essentially or the end of all abortions in the United States what it overturning that is going to do is turn that back over to state level legislation and US the US Congress would not also be um, they would not be remiss in trying to pass legislation themselves Mm -hmm. which rightfully so should have been the legislative body should have been the path taken to establish something like this sure. in our country to start with. But mm-hmm. inevitably, it's going to go to the states, to each state to decide mm-hmm. how they're going to legislate on. And I think we'll see different states having different, probably landing in different places. Yes. And that's going to be interesting, as if our country needs something else to feel division about. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing with us. I'm like I said, I'm sorry for what you've gone through, and yet I'm so glad for what God has done in in your life and the way that He's not only redeemed you and and all the all the decisions leading up to that, but I think He's also really using you in in our church, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, it's just a great testimony. It's just uh, that that was one of the reasons why I wanted to to have you on is I just think that there's so much that's that people need to hear. I think those who, this is this is such a, a complicated issue, and those, the extremes are not necessarily as helpful mm-hmm. on on either mm-hmm. side. Agreed. You know, and I think that we have to be able to have more discussions. We have to be able to, I think, really look people in the eye and and, and love people, and not just rely on laws and legislation, but then also not just to rely on passion and and pride marches Mm -hmm. um you know where there's the whole feminist you know i I think on both ends both extremes that the real issues get lost Mm -hmm. the the issue of you know what are we talking about we're talking about life who are we talking about we're talking about women who have had 
men abuse them Mm -hmm. and damage them for decades and centuries Mm -hmm. and this is what we we have reaped what we've sown and there's so much that makes it so much more complicated than just throwing it out one way or the other and i think your story is is such a great illustration of of the nuance of that and god as your father as someone who cares for you to to provide that uh, to meet that desperate love that you were looking for Mm -hmm. you know there's i hope that's hope for people yeah well Catherine, thank you for for spending the time doing this Mm -hmm. this has been really fun thank you hard and good and all of what life is so um, I really appreciate you coming on and for those of you listening if you uh, if you'd like to contact Catherine um, do you want them to have contact me and I forward it to you or yeah sure or you can um, you can find me I'm on social media but you can also find me on our church's website um, trinitybozeman.org and um, yeah all my contact information is there okay So uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and hope this has been uh, helpful. And um, just continue to pray for this for our nation, for the world, and I think for people to to really see the beauty of what God has created and ask us to to be about and caring for for one another. It it starts in the womb, and um, but it also uh, means caring for that for those carrying the womb so anyway thanks have a good day everybody